Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show with Jason Hartman. You're about to learn a new slant on investing, some exciting techniques, and fresh new approaches to the world's most historically proven asset class that will enable you to create more wealth and freedom than you ever thought possible. Jason is a genuine, self-made multimillionaire who's actually been there and done it. He's a successful investor, lender, developer, and entrepreneur who's owned properties in 11 states, had hundreds of of tenants and been involved in thousands of real estate transactions. This program will help you follow in Jason's footsteps on the road to your financial independence day. You really can do it. And now, here's your host, Jason Hartman, with the complete solution for real estate investors. Welcome to episode 1642-1642, and there is, as always, a lot going on in the world, not the least of which is GameStop and Reddit and hedge fund billionaires who have rigged the economy. As I always say, Wall Street is the modern version of organized crime. <laughs> the riggers get upset when they get rigged back. <laughs> so I've got my buddy Mitch Russo, author of two great books, here just for a quick few minutes with me today. He uh, is about to attend a mastermind meeting that I am actually speaking at uh, in about an hour and a half. Uh, so uh, he's he's in a hotel room, but was nice enough to join us quickly because he is very passionate about what is going on with the rigged economy, with the rigged financial system, with GameStop and Reddit and AMC and the, and the whole thing. You've probably heard about it in the news by now. But Mitch, welcome and thank you for joining us. Oh, my pleasure, Jason. And, and you know, nothing pisses off the uh, mafia like fighting back. Yeah. And, and basically what we got here is we have the Wall Street elites who basically fell asleep knowing that they own the world. And all of a sudden, one single Reddit guy decides that he's going to topple those bastards. Can I say bastards on your show? You can say it. Okay. In fact, we could call them much worse names than that. But Okay, good. Well, let me just make this point because it's so important. No one is really trapped. We are in an illusion of being trapped. And when someone breaks through the illusion and realizes that they can get out of the trap by turning the game on the people who are playing it for us or on us, that's when we achieve real freedom. In fact, this is so powerful. It's crossing Republican Democrat boundaries because everyone is speaking out. So here's in a nutshell, as probably everyone you know knows, the bottom line is that some guy on Reddit started a group and he started to, uh, to basically talk about trading GameStop and to keep buying longs, keep going long on GameStop. Well, all of a sudden what ends up happening is that these huge hedge funds with enormous short positions are daily looking at what's going on here. They're losing money every day. Let, let me, before you go on, because I just want to give a little more context to that. So sure. you've probably all, probably everybody listening has heard the story or at least an inkling of it. And maybe you don't know what's going on. This is hugely significant. Here's the basic thing. And Mitch, correct me if I'm wrong. You know much more about the stock market than I do. But essentially, GameStop is sort of a, a, a kind of a company that's probably on the road to failure, some think, right? You know, times change, e-commerce, you know, everything's changing, right? They got a bunch of retail locations, very expensive to maintain. And so they, they did have a decent amount of cash on hand to kind of sustain their operations. And so the hedge funds thought, you know, 
this is a company that's going to go under. Let's short the heck out of it, right? And then a bunch of people in a group called Wall Street Bets, uh, what's called a subreddit within the Reddit website where people talk and it's democratic, right? People are talking amongst themselves, individuals uh, just thinking about what they want to do. And I guess, what's his name? Peter Gill. Is that the guy that heads the group? Maybe, maybe you don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, But anyway, he sort of led the charge and he's, he's an interesting character. I've read about him. He said, why don't we go long on GameStop, which is the opposite of the shorts. So this is a war, a tug of war between them. And those shorts, those hedge fund billionaires that have been shorting it, they use a lot of leverage to do those shorts, right? So when it works in their favor, it's a beautiful thing and they make a fortune. But when a bunch of people start buying the stock and going long on the stock, that is the opposite bet. And what happens then, Mitch? Well, first of all, let's be clear. There is no intrinsic value in in the stock itself. Although the company made a profit last year, small profit. Yes, they were at 1.7 billion. Now they're down to 4 billion and they still generated a profit. And they were hoping to find their way out. But this, of course, changed the game for them. Now they're they're thrilled. Now they got all this cash they never thought they'd have. But here's what's going on in a nutshell. The people who are buying the stock have no knowledge of stocks, have no knowledge of the stock market, have no no intrinsic value understanding. They don't care. They are being they are being rallied to put money. And some people are putting like $50. You know, there, there are people out there, and the stories, as you know, are amazing. People have already saved their grandfather from, you know, from a nursing home. Others have paid off their college loans. This is a liberation of the people using money from these billionaires' hedge funds. And it and and it hurts. And and guess what? They don't like it. So here's what's going on. And this is some of the more latest developments. Of course, GameStop's ratcheted up, ratcheted up, ratcheted up. So what ends up happening, I heard this morning, you know, these are smart people, these hedge fund operators. They said, well, wait a second. We're playing on the wrong side of the table here. Why don't we get into the game? Why don't we actually start bidding the stock up ourselves? And then once we bid it up, then we crash it and we flush everybody out. Which is basically what Goldman Sachs has been doing for decades. And to all of us. I mean, this is every time you put money into a mutual fund or or any form of a major stock index, what's happening is that these companies are are basically uh, completely manipulating all of these instruments to their benefit, not to yours. And that's what this whole idea, this movement of return power to the people by this Reddit guy has been all about. And And by the way, I found his name. It's Keith Gill. He's 34 years old. He lives in Boston and he's the Redditor, as they say, leading the charge uh, on the Wall Street bets subreddit. And uh, yeah, so uh, he's uh, he's the guy doing it. And the SEC is looking into whether or not he broke any laws, of course. And guess who? The SEC will be influenced by, of course, the hedge funds, right? But it looks like this guy was simply voting with his money. He bought his position and all he did is advocate his position, which is fine, right? That's right. Except the problem now is that the trading platform, one of them called Robinhood, which is very popular among yeah. millennials because it's free to trade. But as you know, you've said this a million times, when anything is free, it's you who's the product. Right. 
it turns out that they had been selling their deal flow back to their their hedge fund cronies. This is Robinhood, yeah. and basically undercutting, undermining all of the investors that have been investing in Robinhood. Well, guess what? Now they have to pony up billions more to cover the cash needs of Robinhood. So what did Robinhood do? They basically broke their core tenet, which is to stop traders from trading. So they basically clamped down and said, okay, sorry, even though you have it in your account, you can't sell it and you can't buy more. So now these guys were trapped. Well, of course, they went to Google. They filled out you know, complaint forms on Google and Google reviews. 100,000 reviews were deleted by Google. You know so, this. You told okay, me. So, so that one is, so basically all the Robinhood customers, the people, again, this is the people versus the corrupt institutions. Basically, yep. that's what this story is about. Yep. And, and they went and they wrote reviews on Google complaining about Robinhood. And then Google, the big disgusting tech company, deleted the reviews, the negative reviews, which were legitimate negative reviews because Robinhood halted the trading. And guess what else? The the one of the big investors in Robinhood also runs a hedge fund called what? Citadel, right? Right. Exactly. And, and he's a big investor in Robinhood and then runs a hedge fund that is holding a position that is getting crushed by... <laughs> Go ahead, Mitch, expand yeah, on so, that. So now, so Steve Cohen comes out, you know, one of the founders of Citadel comes out and says, why are they picking on us rich people? I mean, I <laughs> loved it. It was so great. It was, it was like, oh, my poor rich people. Oh, we're so sorry. We, yeah. we, you know, I hope you don't lose one of your five mansions on the beach in, in Florida. I mean, yeah. that's not a problem. So, okay, so here's here's what's happening now. So as of right now, it looks like the stock is crashing, which, which again, is possibly in this is good in a way because now we're starting to see the 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 what I would call the easy money flush out. Uh, what's going to happen though is according to the what's on the Reddit thread is that they are going to keep pushing it higher and higher and higher. Uh, now with the actual hedge funds themselves in the stock, they're actually going long on the shares that they're short for. They're actually taking advantage now of some of this increase in value. It's a very interesting story and it's still unfolding. But Jason, it is. And, and Mitch, we really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're rushed to get to your meeting to uh, to just share some of this insight with us, because I know you're very passionate about this. I want to say one more thing to people just as an interesting. It's not an aside, but it's interesting to know. What do you think is happening with the CEO of GameStop? Well, guess what? His name is George Sherman. He took the job in two th in April of 2019. So he hasn't been there that long. And he left a company that was a reseller for Verizon Wireless, right? And he goes there and he takes a, a relatively small CEO salary for a public company, a million bucks a year he gets, right? And he was awarded $2 million or just over $2 million in share grants and options. And those were initially valued at $10.5 million. But as of Friday, they were worth over $900 million, <laughs> Right. Yep. I mean, you know, go sell cell phones at the mall. Next day, your CEO of a, of a public company. Look, I mean, what is he? Twelve. I mean, how much experience does this guy have? Of course, none. That's the that's the point. Yeah. But it's the, 
it's it's just amazing. But again, the the just uh, close out Mitch with just um, expand on the idea of the people versus the institutions here. And you know, this is so such a parallel to what happened in our phony corrupt election. What's happening with uh, you know the way the virus is being played out, the way the vaccines are being played out. Uh, it's like. Everything is rigged nowadays. Just everything is rigged. Everything is rigged. And here's the, here's the thing. If it were an even playing field, anybody could go on to Robinhood. Anybody could buy or sell shares. Any, I mean, look, they have a right to clamp down on margin. Margin is loans. They have a right to do that, and they have. But what they don't have a right to do is restrict selling and restrict buying and restrict trading. That is what's going to eventually be their demise. Unless, of course, it's so rigged that even the SEC, as you said earlier, goes along with it and said, well, they were just protecting themselves. Well, look, we we are exposing the underbelly of basically all of the financial systems here. We're basically showing, it's showing us that we never really ever had a fair system. And Mm -hmm. if you're not careful, you can get swallowed up and thrown in the garbage because you're on the wrong side of a trade that really could have been a good trade if they wouldn't have done what they do. Now, just to be clear, this has been going on since the early 1900s. This isn't Mm -hmm. new, but it's gotten bigger and it's gotten louder and it's gotten more powerful with technology. And now most people didn't realize now they do. Now they're seeing what's going on. Yeah. And thank you for that. That is so true. One thing we did not say also that I think is super important is that we all know about the big tech censorship that's just absolutely appalling, disgusting, awful, pathetic that's been going on lately with the election and, you know, the fake fact checkers that don't know anything, you know, and and all this kind of stuff. But but this also was a victim of that because Reddit, I guess, shut down the Wall Street bets subreddit for a while. And there are other censorship issues going on. Do you want to comment on that real quick? Well, they shut it down for 30 minutes. Then they they brought it back up to their credit and it's still running right now. And uh, I don't know if you can get in. I may have closed it to new new members, but the problem is, of course, is that when, when the, you know, the ruling powers control everything, they control the freedom of speech on every level, including as we've seen with parlor servers. So now we have Amazon shutting down Parler. We have, we have uh, Apple taking the app out of the store. I mean, when Google, Facebook, all the rest, Twitter, when you have a monopoly like this, that basically no one has power, but, but the owners of those companies that are being basically led by, by the politicians, then you really lose all freedom. And, And this goes back to my entire conversation about how the constitution was originally created to pro to protect us, to protect mm-hmm. the citizens from the yep. government. And guess what? Ain't happening. Yeah. Yeah. Mitch, thank you so much. You want to give out your website. You've got two great books. You you teach business and, you know, you you had a company with uh, Tony Robbins and, and Chet Holmes years ago and have just a, a wealth of experience in the software field and so forth. Do you want to share a website? Sure. Go to MitchRusso.com to learn more about me. Excellent. Mitch Russo, thanks for joining us. So we are going to get to Saifedean Amos, and he is the author of The Bitcoin Standard, a fantastic book. This is a long interview, so he'll be back with us on Wednesday. But I've got my friend Ashley here, and she is a connoisseur of fine art and uh, culture, and she's an opera singer, so, you know, that's, that's good. But here's what we wanted to say. Yesterday, we went to the Norton Museum in Palm Beach, 
And before that, we had listened to an audio clip from the Bitcoin standard. And we will have the author here with us in just a few minutes. And I thought you should hear some of this and hear about what we saw yesterday and this amazing connection that the author makes between sound money and culture and innovation and art and why great art uh, doesn't really happen very often nowadays in an era of unsound money. Do you want to first talk about Banksy and that auction? Well, there was in 2018, there was a painting by Banksy and he built into the frame of this painting, a shredder. A paper shredder. A paper shredder. Yeah. <laughs> and so as soon as it was sold at this auction for 1.4 million, the painting shredded itself. And now, consequently, it's more valuable. Yeah. <laughs> and this actually was a pretty good gimmick, I thought, you know. Um, but but here's one for you that you probably heard about in the news. The banana with duct tape on a piece of canvas for $120,000. I mean, this is So what nuts. what makes that art? Who decided that this is this yeah. is art and I don't get it. So does that make me any less? Yeah. I I'm just going to say I don't get it. So Saifedean, uh who you're going to hear from in just a moment, basically says, well, he he makes this connection between fiat money and culture and innovation. He talks about inventions and how during sound money eras, we had incredible inventions. We think we have that today, but we never know what. We never know and we never have the answer of compared to what, right? We never have that because it's always an unknown because we can't hear the dogs that don't bark. How much better would innovation be today? How much better would technology be today if we were in a world of sound money? And here's the basic concept, and I'll, I'll have you hear a clip from his book and then we'll get to the interview, of course. But the basic idea is that when you have sound money, you have a long time preference, meaning that since your money doesn't depreciate in value with inflation, you know what to expect in the future. When you have unsound money, when you have fiat money, when the money is constantly being debased by inflation, you don't know what to expect. And therefore, you make bad investment decisions. And so art and technology and innovation, just like everything else, has to be financed right? Mm -hmm. And so the Medici family that we've talked about uh, recently, basically financed Michelangelo's work, right? Mm -hmm. And Brunelleschi's, they, they yeah. commissioned many works of art and buildings, and which are architecture, certainly an important form of art. Well, you know, we know. <laughs> I believe it's the most important form of art, music being number two, mm -hmm. and fashion being number three, you've probably heard me say that before. But they had to have sound money to be able to invest in something and finance something and wait a long time for the return. So didn't it take Michelangelo like four years to do the Sistine Chapel, yes, right? At least, yes. How long does it take to stick a banana to a wall with duct tape? At least four minutes. Well, at four, least. Oh, probably not even four <laughs> minutes. Come on. <laughs> Let's try it. Maybe we can do our own. Sell it for you have to be very 000. careful. Yeah. The placement is, is, is essential. So the idea is... You get these contemporary artists, I'll say in quotes, and they make this dumb art that isn't art. 
And then if they have a snooty attitude and uh, if everyone they're talking to and lecturing doesn't get it, right, then they're the idiots. But, you know, we really know who the idiot is. It's the artist, right? So just listen to this quick clip and then we will get to the interview. Flourishing. The contributions of sound money to human flourishing are not restricted to scientific and technological advance. They can also be vividly seen in the art world. It is no coincidence that Florentine and Venetian artists were the leaders of the Renaissance, as these were the two cities which led Europe in the adoption of sound money. The Baroque, neoclassical, romantic, realistic, and post-impressionistic schools were all financed by wealthy patrons holding sound money with a very low time preference and the patience to wait for years or even decades for the completion of masterpieces meant to survive for centuries. So sound money provides the opportunity for people to have low time preference. When money is unsound, they have to have instant gratification. So they have a high time preference and they want the banana and the duct tape now. And they wanna get their money out of it now, right? Because they don't know what their money will be worth in the future. The astonishing domes of Europe's churches, built and decorated over decades of inspired meticulous work by incomparable architects and artists like Filippo Brunelleschi, and Michelangelo were all financed with sound money by patrons with very low time preference. The only way to impress these patrons was to build artwork that would last long enough to immortalize their names as the owners of great collections and patrons of great artists. This is why Florence's Medici's are perhaps better remembered for their patronage of the arts than for their innovations in banking and finance, though the latter may be far more consequential. Similarly, the musical works of Bach, Mozart, Beethoven, and the Mozart. composers of the Renaissance, Beethoven. classical and romantic eras, Put to shame today's animalistic noises recorded in batches of a few minutes, churned out by the ton, by studios profiting from selling to man the titillation of his basest instincts. Whereas the music of the golden era spoke to man's soul, and awakened him to think of higher callings than the mundane grind of daily life, today's musical noises speak to man's most base animalistic instincts, distracting him from the realities of life by inviting him to indulge in immediate sensory pleasures with no concern for long-term consequences or anything more profound. It was hard money that financed Bach's Brandenburg concertos, while easy money financed Miley Cyrus's twerks. In times of sound money and low time preference, artists worked on perfecting their craft so they could produce valuable works in the long run. They spent years learning the intricate details and techniques of their work, perfecting it, and excelling in developing it beyond the capabilities of others to the astonishment of their patrons and the general public. Nobody stood a chance of being called an artist without years of hard work on developing their craft. Artists did not condescendingly lecture the public on what art is, why their lazy productions that took a day to make are profound. Bach never claimed to be a genius, or spoke at length about how his music was better than that of others. He instead spent his life perfecting his craft. Michelangelo spent four years hanging from the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, working for most of the day with little food in order to paint his masterpiece. He even wrote a poem to describe the ordeal. I've grown a goiter by dwelling in this den, as cats from stagnant streams in Lombardy or in what other land they have to be, which drives the belly close beneath the chin. My beard turns up to heaven, my nape falls in. Fixed on my spine, my breastbone visibly, grows like a harp, a rich embroidery. Bedews my face from brush drops thick and thin, my loins into my paunch like levers grind, my buttock like a crupper bears my weight, my feet unguided wander to and fro. In front my skin grows loose and long, behind, by bending it, becomes more taut and straight. Crosswise I strain me like a Syrian bow, whence false and quaint, I know, must be the fruit of squinting brain and eye, 
For ill can aim the gun that bends our Come then, Giovanni, try to succor my dead pictures and my fame, since foul I fare, and painting is my shame. Only with such meticulous and dedicated effort, over many decades, did these geniuses succeed in producing these masterpieces, immortalizing their names as the masters of their craft. In the era of unsound money, no artist has the low time preference to work as hard or as long as Michelangelo or Bach to learn their craft properly or spend any significant amount of time perfecting it. A stroll through a modern art gallery shows artistic works whose production requires no more effort or talent. We got to have you hear this part. But so you see, you understand the, the, the sacrifices that were made for art in the past, right? And these great artists didn't have to explain mm -hmm. that their art was great. It spoke for itself. Whereas nowadays, uh, and there are good artists nowadays, certainly, certainly right? Certainly, yeah. absolutely. But a lot of it is just pure junk. It's the banana and the duct tape. But you're told it's a great work of art. Yes, because, and if we don't get it and we don't see the brilliance of the banana with the duct tape, we're the idiots, right? We're told Naturally. we have to be the idiots. Yeah, yeah. But of course, that's not true. And I want you to think about this with the era we just experienced of the censorship of the election, or when something is posted on social media and you get some fact checker warning. We're being told we're wrong, but that's very debatable, if you ask me. Don't you think? I agree. And can be mustered by a bored six-year-old. Modern artists have replaced craft and long hours of practice with pretentiousness, shock value, indignation, and existential angst as ways to cow audiences into appreciating their art, and often added some pretense to political ideals, usually of the puerile Marxist variety, to pretend play profundity. To the extent that anything good can be said about modern art, it is art. that it is clever in the manner of a prank or practical joke. There is nothing beautiful or admirable about the output or the process of most modern art, because it was produced in a matter of hours by lazy, talentless hacks who never bothered to practice their craft. Only cheap pretentiousness, obscenity, and shock value attract attention to the naked emperor of modern art, and only long, pretentious diatribes shaming others for not understanding the work give it value. As government money has replaced sound money, patrons with low time preference and refined tastes have been replaced by government bureaucrats with political agendas as crude as their artistic taste. Naturally then, neither beauty nor longevity matters anymore replaced with political prattling and the ability to impress bureaucrats who control the major funding sources to the large galleries and museums, which have become a government-protected monopoly on artistic taste and standards for artistic education. Free competition between... So think of the National Endowment for the Arts and all the controversy that has happened over the National Endowment for the Arts and, um, you know, the accusations that they're promoting pornography and all kinds of tasteless junk, right? And uh, it, it's just, this is pretty interesting. I guess we'll sum it up to say it's all about time preference. And the author goes into innovation and talks about some really interesting things about progress and uh, human achievement, not just artistically like we're talking about now, but overall in every area of life and how this just impacts us in so, so many ways. So Bitcoin is a highly speculative asset. Okay, uh, it could be worth zero tomorrow. Uh, who knows? Some of the promoters say it could be worth an absolute fortune. Nobody really knows yet because it's only about 11, just over 11 years old now. So we don't know. But the concept, regardless of Bitcoin itself, is 
fascinating, the idea of time preference. And uh, remember, I've said to you a lot over the years about the basic two decisions every human faces all day long, all the time. And that decision is have it now, have the easy, quick thing, or delay gratification for some bigger thing in the future. Those are basically the two big decisions we're always evaluating throughout our day. You know, do I eat this piece of cheesecake or do I go to the gym, right? That's a decision, right? Or, you know, do I, do I have the chocolate bar or take a walk and have some vegetables or an avocado or something, right? These are always the decisions between the long-term and the short term, and that uh, a lot of this plays into our mentality, and we don't even realize it because of this time preference created by fiat money, when in the old days, we used to have sound money that would allow us to have a long time preference. Just imagine this. Imagine you could take a $100 bill, and you could stick it in an envelope, hide it in your house, and in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years, it would still have the same value versus that value. And, and for example, in the 30 years, in that inflation-induced debt destruction example that I give, in 30 years, that $1,972 was only worth $24 at the end. So you have to have a high time preference in an era with unsound money. When the money is sound, you can delay gratification more effectively and make better art, better innovation, better technology, better decisions that aren't full of malinvestment. So that's the concept. And let's go to the interview unless you have a closing thought. You're gonna wanna eat that banana right now. I, I think the banana is probably spoiled. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and watch out for a, uh, a paper shredder embedded in any of your picture frames of your modern art, right? Certainly. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Here is the interview with Saifedean Amos, author of The Bitcoin Standard. It is my pleasure to welcome Saifedean Amos. He is the author of a fantastic book that I just finished and really, really enjoyed. It was one of the best economic books I have uh, read, and it is entitled The Bitcoin Standard. And he's got a new book coming out with a fascinating thesis as well about fiat money and really what it does to our culture and, and to our thinking and uh, how it maybe impacts morality. I'll let him tell you about it, but it's a it's a fascinating thesis. Uh, so, Safe, welcome. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you for having me. Good. It's good to have you on. So, Safe, tell us a little bit about uh, what brought about the book, The Bitcoin Standard. You know, it seems as though you really spend maybe the first half of the book talking about what is money, explaining economic concepts, and then the latter part, you talk about cryptocurrencies. But in the beginning, you know, let's just give people some background uh, because there are some interesting uh, fundamentals that I think are, are just really important to understand to grasp this entire concept. I think the book came out after having uh, spent several years looking at Bitcoin and thinking about it, coming up with um, ways of analyzing it, which had gotten me some very small degree of uh, prominence in a very small uh, circle of uh, 
uh, Bitcoin Twitter users. And essentially, you know, I, I had developed all these ideas about what Bitcoin um, means and the significance and the economic meaning of, of Bitcoin over time. And then, you know, I was, I was uh, arguing about people with it on the internet all the time. And then um, really my wife basically told me, you know, you should be doing something more productive than just arguing with people on the internet. So I decided to <laughs> write this down into long form. You know, every time I would, uh, I would be tempted to answer someone online, I just decided, you know what, let me just go write a couple of pages in the book. And um, <laughs> in that sense, I just kept on um, developing this until it became a whole book and it, it became a full um, vision of how I understand the economics of Bitcoin. And the title came toward the end, but I think it was a quite fitting title because the whole book is, well, the book makes a lot of analogy to gold and the gold standard. And so uh, the, the point that I'm trying to communicate is that Bitcoin is effectively our new gold standard. It, mm -hmm. or it could, could have the potential to be our new gold standard. When you look at money, I mean, money really is supposed to, well, there's also distinction, of course, between money and currency, and maybe you want to go into that. But money really has sort of three basic functions, right? Yeah. Generally, people think about uh, the three basic functions of money as being the medium of exchange, a store of value, and the unit of account. In my book, I focus the analysis on uh, the function of a store of value, because in my mind, I think this is the one that ends up giving monetary choice, a monetary uh, role, that, that ends up deciding the monetary role, just because of how um, economics really works. If you store your money in a thing that is easy to produce, then that thing will lose value over time, and you won't have a lot of money. And so the money that is stored in things that are hard to produce, on the other hand, will hold its value quite well and will maintain its value. So over time, it will stay the same or it will increase. So the net result is that over time, money and wealth tends to concentrate and accumulate in the hands of the people who are holding the hardest money. And eventually, everybody else learns that lesson. And so you end up with the hardest money dominating. And that's generally been the history of money. So, of course, paper, uh, fiat money, uh, dollar bills, uh, euros, whatever, in, in paper form especially, are very easy to produce. It's simply running the printing press. And uh, gold uh, is hard to produce, right? It's hard to get gold out of the ground. It's very costly to do it. It's rare. And then, of course, Bitcoin is mathematically rare, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I think the, the most interesting monetary property of Bitcoin that I discuss in my book is that it is the first thing that we've ever invented that's um, uh, a liquid asset, but also strictly scarce. There's no way of making more of it. There's no way of making more Bitcoin than what the Bitcoin code uh, stipulates. And that's why over the last 12 years, Bitcoin has um, grown exactly according to the schedule of, of the supply as it was laid out before. There's not been any single person anywhere who's managed to find a way of making more Bitcoin uh, than what the schedule has. And I think that's absolutely unique because it's the one supply, it's the one good whose supply is completely uh, irresponsive to demand. You know, no matter what happens with demand, the supply of Bitcoin will not respond. It'll just always produce the uh, pre-programmed uh, amount that needs to be producing. Our, our client, Keith Gibson, referred you to the program, and I'm very thankful uh, to him for, uh, for uh, asking you to come on the show. And he had a question. He said, um, could you explain how Bitcoin acts as a base layer money, similar to the central bank's settlement layer, and how that ties into the criticisms 
of Bitcoin's low transaction per second compared to, say, MasterCard or Visa. So, you know, or PayPal. So you talk in the book, and I, I remember this, uh, about how Bitcoin is actually inefficient. Uh, people like to talk about how the blockchain is efficient, but, you know, it's it's really not very efficient, right? But it's very that that's one of the things that makes it very secure. I think yeah, uh, yeah. maybe I'm not saying it's that reliable, correctly. not efficient. Yeah, good. Tell tell us more about that and this base layer question that Keith has. Yeah, I think uh, you know before uh, before my book was published, there was a uh, the the predominant view on Bitcoin was that Bitcoin was some kind of new PayPal, new Visa, new Mastercard, new Western Union. It was going to disrupt banks. It was an alternative to banks. You can be your own bank. You can have your bank in your own pocket. And this was, um, you know, th- this was generally how people viewed Bitcoin. And based on this, people thought that, you know, the the the, um, the limit, the main criticism of Bitcoin and the main limitation of Bitcoin was that, well, Bitcoin can only do so many transactions. But you know, Visa does five thousand times as many transactions as Bitcoin's maximum capacity. So Bitcoin has no chance of competing with Visa. And my book made the case that Bitcoin does not compete with Visa. Um, uh, Bitcoin, you know, Bitcoin and Visa are like petrol and cars. Uh, they're not competitive in goods. They need each other to function. You can't have cars without petrol. And so my point is that Bitcoin is not a payment network. It's not comparable to PayPal or Visa. Bitcoin is more comparable to central bank settlement layers. Bitcoin is more similar to the national central banks and the national currencies that Visa, MasterCard, PayPal use to settle um, their transactions with uh, others, with other financial institutions or with their clients. So what would those be the SDRs, the special drawing rights? Well, um, um, I mean, mainly it's national uh, currencies uh, uh, is, is what Bitcoin replaces. So Okay. The subtitle of my book is that the Bitcoin standard is the decentralized alternative to central banking. And that's okay. the, the point is that it is, um, you know, Bitcoin does not compete with banks and it does not compete with payment processors. Bitcoin will need banks and payment processors built on top of it. Bitcoin competes with the settlement layer behind banks and payment processors. But it offers companies like PayPal and like Visa and like MasterCard, it offers them a monetary standard that they can use without having to resort to central banks. It's a, it's the only alternative that uh, financial institutions around the world and individuals have to central banks because you can now settle payments internationally without having to go through a central bank, which means it's no longer a political question. It's just a purely technical question that you need to solve. It's, it's just, you know, you put in the private keys and your money travels across national borders which is something that could not happen before. You know, before the invention of Bitcoin, if you wanted to move money internationally, you had to go through central banks. That was the only mechanism for um, uh, money transfer. And Bitcoin offers uh, offers us an alternative to that. Okay, so I think that's a good segue to uh, just maybe telling you a little bit about my evolution in this, because I think it will address some of the skepticism that people have out there. You know, I started hosting a show called The Cryptocast uh, several years ago and expressed some of this skepticism very openly. So I learned about Bitcoin when it was $74 and, of course, have many regrets now. (laughs) So I'll be the first to say that. Um, um, And, you know, for a long time, I just didn't get it right. I didn't understand it. And I, uh, you know, some of my skepticism that still remains is 
is this. Um, I believe the two most powerful forces in the world are governments and central banks. Uh, they have standing armies, they have their cartels, they, they just run the world largely. And, um, you know, their product is currency. That is their widget, right? Just like if, you know, I'm in business and I have a product I sell and, you know, someone else is in business, they have a widget they sell and they don't like competition, right? So why would they let this exist? And I, I know you may well say there's an argument that they can't do anything about it. Okay, great. I, you know, and I've always said safe, I'd love to be wrong about this because my libertarian side says I would not love nothing more than to see a decentralized currency controlled by the people, not the, the central banks and governments flourish uh, because so much of our lives are controlled by the fiat money. We're all, we all become puppets on the strings of inflation, deflation, velocity, etc. And, and capital controls uh, and economic Berlin walls. So I don't like any of that. But, um, you know, that that's kind of my evolution. Now, when I got, uh, I purchased, I bought into the market when it was about $800. And then I bought a lot more when I saw Michael Saylor and Mass Mutual getting into it and putting hundreds of millions of dollars. And I thought the institutions get into it. You know, the, the big governments and central banks probably aren't going to screw over the institutions, but they'll screw over the little people, right? That was that was kind of my, my thinking. So there's a lot for you to chew on there. But what do you think? I mean, I think uh, that was um, that was also my uh, initial impression about Bitcoin. And the reason I was late to Bitcoin is that I spent a lot of years just uh, thinking, well, you know, um, I don't want to be holding it when they crack down on it and start throwing people in jail for it. Yeah, yeah maybe they um, make it illegal, right? Yeah, make it illegal or, uh, you know, uh, it, it's not something you want to do. You know, a lot of people have gone into jail for um, doing things uh, that threaten uh, banking monopolies. So it's, it's no joke. You would think that this would be far more seriously uh, persecuted. But by 2013, it became uh, clear that there was something a little bit different about this. They're just not going to go after it uh, very directly. And I think, in my mind, the turning point was when the Silk Road uh, website was shut down and its owner was arrested, or its alleged operator was arrested in uh, 2013, early 2013. In my mind, this was going to be the end of Bitcoin. And in my mind, this was the scenario that I had for why Bitcoin would end. You know, they would find the website like that and... Um, they shut it down and then say, well, this was enabled by Bitcoin. And so if you hold Bitcoin, you are a criminal. And, uh, you know, then everybody's going to dump their Bitcoin and the price of Bitcoin is going to crash. And that will probably be end of the experiment because it won't be able to recover because, you know, the, the damage. It, it'll have this bad perception that it's used by criminals and terrorists, which interestingly, and you aptly point this out in the book, that it's actually a terrible thing for criminals and terrorists because it is not private, contrary to popular belief. It is traceable on the blockchain, right? So, yes. you know, we should dispel that myth that some still believe, but go, go ahead. Yeah, uh, it's, uh, it, it's quite easy to make mistakes that make you easily trackable. It's not very easy to not be tracked. It's not easy to be anonymous on Bitcoin. Bitcoin is not an anonymous network. It's a pseudonymous network. And uh, it's always possible that uh, somebody could... Uh, well, not always possible, but I mean, it, it is possible that uh, your identity could be um, identified. So um, I think what, what what was interesting was that after that website was closed down, number one, 
Bitcoin did not crash. In fact, Bitcoin recovered and rallied from that. Um, from after that, you know, over the next six or seven months, it uh, it went up tenfold in price after what should have killed it, in my uh, estimation at that time. And the other thing which I found extremely interesting was that uh, there was no direct persecution of Bitcoin. In fact, in 2013 is when Bitcoin started going mainstream and um, U.S. companies uh, started uh, offering it as a service and it became legal. Uh, you know, uh, it didn't become legal. It was never illegal, but it, it became increasingly mainstream. Uh, I mean, obviously nowhere near as mainstream as it is right now, but up until 2012, you know, you could have... You could have been forgiven for thinking that Bitcoin was mainly for people to buy drugs online because that was the thing that most people had heard about when it comes to Bitcoin. But by 2013, that had begun to shift a little bit. And then um, obviously it has shifted much more. But what I think is interesting is um, that in, in 2013 and 14 is when this idea started to occur to me that, you know what, um, maybe they're not going to ban it just because uh, this is just a far more advanced form of technology than what we have. And, um, you know, I'm sure some individual governments will ban it, but I started thinking of it as uh, Bitcoin is like gunpowder. And, mm -hmm. you know, when gunpowder came out, gunpowder was massively disruptive to the existing armies. If you had an army that did not have gunpowder and then another army had gunpowder, well, your army is basically no more because the other army can just take them all out from long range before your army could even take out a single sword. So, um, you know, when gunpowder came about, governments didn't ban it. Governments sought to get it. And I see something similar developing uh, with Bitcoin in that uh, once people begin to understand the value proposition of Bitcoin, rather than want to attack it, they start wanting to acquire it. And so one interesting, I think, turning point is that the prosecutor in the um, Silk Road case or the investigator in the Silk Road case, they could have taken the path of recommending that, you know, we go after Bitcoin itself. Instead, they ended up becoming Bitcoiners themselves. And <laughs> they even work in the Bitcoin space right now. And we see yeah. this over and over and over again. Once you <laughs> get a taste of um, Bitcoin's incredible uh, potential, it, it it's almost like Bitcoin co-opts you to its purposes. You know, suddenly you have just been bitten by the bug and now you're just like all the other Bitcoin uh, uh, victims, you're just you know thinking about it and thinking about how to serve Bitcoin and how to further Bitcoin because that's it. You've been uh, you've been bitten. This will be continued on the next episode. Thank you for listening and happy investing. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. Be sure to check out the show's specific website and our general website, hartmanmedia.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Remember that guest opinions are their own. And if you require specific legal or tax advice or advice in any other specialized area, please consult an appropriate professional. And we also very much appreciate you reviewing the show. Please go Go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio or whatever platform you're using and write a review for the show. We would very much appreciate that. And be sure to make it official and subscribe so you do not miss any episodes. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Yeah.